This is Tommy's Outdoors 92. Today, we're gonna kind of continue to talk about rewilding, but only kind of, because I feel like, uh, at least for me, our guest today, Kathy Main, offers a fresh perspective. At least that's the perspective that I don't hear that often when we talk about rewilding. Uh, Kathy is a ecologist, and he has, she has a deep understanding of upland ecology. Uh, he, she has a deep understanding of land management and deer management in particular. And in the episode, we talk about rewilding and ecology, but also talk about people who live on the land that we're supposed to, to rewild and about their cultural heritage and about various economics, economic and social aspects of uh, live life in uplands and how rewilding might or might not uh, impact that. Um, I- I'm not going to say anything more because you're about to listen to our over an hour long conversation about those issues. Uh, so as usual, just before I let you enjoy this episode of Tommy's Outdoors, reminder that this episode, this all episodes of Tommy's Outdoors are available on any and all podcast platforms in audio version, as well as in video version on YouTube. Um, so if you like Tommy's Outdoors and you like my content, please like, share, leave the rating, leave the review, leave the comment. That helps me a lot. And also follow me on social media at Tommy's Outdoors on Twitter and Tommy's Outdoors on Instagram and Facebook. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, Upland Ecology with Kathy May. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed, Tommy. <laughs> very good to have you. Um, listen, uh, maybe I, I could do, probably could do a, a really bad job at introducing you. So maybe you introduce yourself to our listeners. So it's going to be way better. <laughs> I'll try. Um, so I'm now an ecologist. Um, I was uh, born and raised in South London and uh, fell in love with the Scottish Highlands when I was a child and came up here on holiday. And I moved up here in 1988, which was just literally as I finished my first degree at university, I did geography. Um, And I came up here and didn't really have a job and um, did a bit of work in the Forestry Commission and went back to university and did a um, an environmental management uh, diploma, and then I started a PhD. And I was at that stage, what was really interesting me, because it was very new then, the early 1990s, late 80s, was climate change and the impact that that might have on anything ecological. So I did a, I did a kind of multidisciplinary PhD, which, which was fraught with problems, um, but it, it, it involved me going up mountains, which has always been my big passion. Um, so I did that and was kind of moving into ecology and, and then a series of, of um, unfortunate 
circumstances meant that I actually didn't do that and I went into outdoor education. So I then had a, um, a reasonably good career for a few years here, teaching outdoor education and working in, as well in hospitality. So, you know, running bed and breakfast and chalets and doing all of the multiple things that you need to do to make a living up here. Um, and then that stopped in 2001 when I had a, a major health scare. Um, and going back to um, outdoor ed became impossible um, partly because I became a type one diabetic, which meant that I couldn't drive a minibus with kids in it. I, you know, there's lots of things that would have been really challenging. So I went back to ecology um, and I worked on, started off working on Cairngorm Mountain on the uh, monitoring scheme for the funicular development, which was, you know, very controversial uh, development on Cairngorm. And since then I've worked in a national agency, Scottish Natural Heritage, it's now called Nature Scott, but a national agency that's an advisor to the government, um, which is what brought me to Loch Harbour, which is where I am now. And coming to Loch Harbour was interesting because it, it there are two main issues that challenge um, sort of ecological processes here, which are, um, one of them's rhododendron and the other one is deer. So, by, by working with SNH, I've become, by default, a bit more of an expert in deer management. And I've now been freelance for a little over three years, and I actively participate in deer management as well. So um, most, not all, but most of my work um, focuses around deer in one way, shape or form. Right, right. That you know, and I'm not gonna lie. We're gonna talk um, mainly about uh, Scotland, but uh, me being based in Ireland, I'm I'm always gonna draw the parallels in the yeah. situation in Ireland because I think it, it, on many in many ways it's similar, especially when we talk about uh, uplands and what's going on in the uplands. Yeah. Um, and you're so I would like to s start right off the bat with uh, this question that. It's quite often, uh, we, I, I talk quite often on the podcast, when we see the upland landscape, mm. right? Um, there are two different types of, look, the two different people or two different ways of looking at it. One mm. is it's beautiful landscape, mountains, and, you know, just, just absorb mm. the beauty of the place. And then there is other one, which is, potentially potentially ecologically more accurate which is this is wet desert uh, minimum uh, ecological productivity it's destroyed landscape dead habitat etc etc just to have a, like a strong start to the podcast what's your take on this like how in which camp you're you're in is it is it dead habitat dead landscape or is it beautiful and we should cherish what we see I might sit on the fence on this one. <laughs> no. That's okay. That's okay. No. Because, because uh, honestly, I'm on the fence as well. I can make arguments on both. So, so what you're describing there are, are two, two ends of the spectrum, the continuum of opinion. Um, and, and, and we all know we live in a, a time when actually opinions are very polarized across ah. the spectrum of views. You know, everything is very polarized. Um, my personal view is 
complex. Um, I don't see our landscape in the same kind of black and white, good, bad, right, wrong um, context. Um, I'm used to an open landscape. So that's partly around what my mind is used to seeing. Um, and when I'm in an open landscape, and I do spend probably half of my working life out in the field, spent all summer doing field work, and it's almost all out on the open hill. Um, I don't see a landscape that's totally devoid of life or value. So I start from there and say, I don't agree with the idea that it's a completely barren desert. Um, however, it wouldn't be right to say that it is unimpacted. It is impacted, and there's very little of our landscape that is not a product of a degree of human interference. So a lot of what we see here and a lot of the ecological problems that we're trying to uh, find a way around in the areas that are least productive, the areas that are most degraded, if you want to look at it from an ecological point of view, degraded, are often the product of centuries, certainly decades, and probably more like centuries of management which um, hasn't has has pushed has pushed the functioning of habitats from from one kind of norm into another. And very often there there are thresholds that habitats will go through that mean that they can't return naturally without active management. So that there are quite a lot of habitats that I work with at the moment where I'm trying to find ways to improve them um, and actually just removing grazing pressure makes it worse. Doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem at all. These habitats actively need intervention in order to allow them to start to recover towards something that we perceive to be more natural. So that's, that's one thing. Another thing which I think is, is um, relevant is that our view of what that habitat should look like is not necessarily terribly well informed. Um, and do we want a climax vegetation type? I mean, that's quite an old fashioned view now, but it's, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily what makes for the best um, and most resilient habitat going forwards. So we're living in a time of incomparably rapid environmental change. Yeah? Yeah. What we want is habitats that are going to be robust and resilient to be able to adapt effectively to changes imposed by climate and pollution and other things. Mm -hmm. 
Ah, uh, that's very interesting. I I knew I knew you're gonna offer a very fresh view on 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 this. So so there is a couple of points there that that I that I like to explore a little bit more. First off is what you mentioned that removing grazing pressure not necessarily improves that habitat. Okay, so I I kind of give you and and the listeners and viewers um, point of view. Um, like maybe not necessarily my point of view, but a point of view that I hear quite often. And, and I draw the parallel maybe incorrectly and probably somebody will correct me in the comment section that whatever is uh, deer doing in Scotland on the highlands, I feel like in Ireland we have sheep that does the same thing, overgrazing. So Regardless, what is the animal that does it is overgrazing? We should, you know, shoot all the deer or maybe remove all the sheep from the uplands and then leave the nature to itself and the, and the forest will regenerate. And you can see some parts of that. I, 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 I posted a few photos when there is a hillside, which is, you know, like overgrazed. Let's use that term. Uh, meaning there is no woodland and or anything like, and then on the very steep parts where they are just too steep, you have trees. You have kind of like a, I would assume, uh, for people having this point of view that this is how it should look like. So if you remove all the grazing, this is how the whole hillside will look like, and this is the habitat we want. Now you're telling me like, ah, not necessarily. If you remove all the deer, if you remove all the sheep, that's not necessarily what happens. So can you just explain that? So um, a lot of the habitats I deal with here in the West are ones where um, shrubby vegetation, predominantly heather, has has gone. It's been lost from the sward. And a lot of the restoration that we're looking for is especially around peaty soils, which is most of the soils around here, to be honest. There's very little that isn't peat-based. Um, we're looking to try to reestablish a dwarf, a dwarf shrub rich sward. Um, and what we have, which is a product of long periods of heavy grazing, actually predominantly by sheep. Now it's mostly deer because mostly the sheep have gone and the deer have moved in to replace them. But historically, it was livestock. If you go back 150, between 150 and 200 years, there were very few deer. If there were deer, the people would have hunted them down until they were dead because they were that hungry. Yeah. And the hill was covered, in the summer at least, in livestock. That pattern changed with the introduction of sheep farming on a large scale um, when the people were shipped off to North America and, and Australia. And we had a lot of sheep, a huge number of sheep. Um, that's now largely disappeared. And in their place, we now have quite a lot of deer. But the habitat that you see is a product of that history of grazing and burning. And what we now have is, is a sward that's completely dominated or mostly dominated by purple moorgrass, Melinia kerulia. And it's really, really difficult to do anything with that. 
It has a heavy leaf litter. It's not very nutritious. Livestock like it for the first sort of six weeks, and then they really struggle with it. And the only, if you take the grazing pressure down on a millennia dominated sward, you just get more millennia and you get less of anything else. The only way to get rid of millennia and to start to bring more diversity in, whether that's with other grassy species or with dwarf shrubs, is actually to, in some way, break up the millennia. And there are ways of doing that with, with chemicals, with fire, with cattle. But you have to do something. And those places where I've seen large amounts of livestock taken off, and not necessarily a, a, a heavy background deer population, but even if there is, you still get this just this gross millennia growth which is useless from any kind of diversity point of view because it is a complete dominant and it really isn't very valuable. In order to recover that to something that's more biodiverse and more useful, useful in an ecological or in human terms, yeah. you need to intervene. Just leaving it doesn't, doesn't solve that problem. Right. Is that a matter of for how long you're going to leave it? Like, kind of, like, if you're... Because often this is expectation, you know, how quickly something will happen. So if we say, like, oh, we're going to leave it for, you know, 50 years, what you're saying, we, we will not see the woodland regeneration on, on those hills. I don't think so, no. Right, no. that's, that's, that's and, and interesting. To be honest, to be honest, um, I think our... I think our expectation of the extent of woodland and what that woodland looks like isn't necessarily something that we have a, a particularly ecologically sound view of. Um, you know, we t so if we, if we plant a woodland nowadays, you know, we're going to plant a native woodland, we're trying to replicate, we're trying to fast track this habitat from an open habitat into a, you know, a climax woodland habitat. And we're trying to do that in the space of 10 or 15 years when actually naturally it takes several hundred years. Um, okay. So stick a fence up. We're going to try and, we're going to try and achieve that. We, we start to think about species composition and we, we have a view of what that end product looks like. And, you know, often it has quite a lot of oak in it and it has a bit of birch and it has a bit of holly and a bit of aspen and a bit of, you know, and the occasional pine and, you know, variety of species. But we have a view of what that native woodland should look like. And we plant it like that and we plant it at high density. So we dig a hole and we plant, plant often plant the tree on the mound of the uh, material that's come out the hole. And we're planting 1,200, 1,600 stems per hectare. A hectare of natural woodland has, I don't know, 20 trees, 50 trees. And a natural woodland will also have a, a, a distribution of species depending on where in the lifespan of that woodland you're looking. So... As a woodland develops, its species composition will change and it will actually move 
because it will not regenerate under a closed canopy. So where it regenerates is actually at the edge and then it, it moves over there and then it will come back again. So a woodland is a, is a, a much more versatile and it has, it, it has open spaces in it. It has areas of dense thicket. It has, it has a whole variety of things, but it doesn't look much like what we plant. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. Um, it's, 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 yeah, I'm really glad we have that conversation because you, you kind of uh, debunked, so to say, um, opinion like leave it alone and it will regenerate and we have a, we have a woodland and we have all, all that. I think that a lot of that is just longing for what's gone because right you you hear the, you hear those things like oh this is uh, our um moral obligation to bring back what's lost and we need to have richer natural heritage and and but i i would just say like this is just which i agree i i understand that but maybe there's a little less of the ecological kind of um like a hard ecological evidence that you are, I feel like you're giving us now and more of a, you know, longing for what's gone. Okay. So we are, we are capable of significant intellectual ability as a species. We're capable of great creativity. We're pretty rubbish at, doing what we intellectually know we should do. <laughs> okay? It's like, it's like eat healthy and exercise every day. We all Absolutely. know that we need to do that. <laughs> Don't fly anywhere. You know, that we, know, we know intellectually we're facing, a, you know, a, a climate emergency. We're facing an ecological global catastrophe. And I, I absolutely believe that we are at a kind of tipping point where we have an opportunity to make a better world for everything and everybody, whatever species they are. And we also have the capacity to do inconceivable destruction and damage, way worse than what we already have managed to do. Um, and I, I have to say, I'm not very op optimistic that we're, we're going to necessarily choose the right path. Um, the right path, in my view, being one that is um, ecologically beneficial and allows our planet to thrive alongside you know, us as part of that system. And a lot of our problems stem from the fact that we have intellectually taken ourselves out of that system. We don't think of ourselves as being part of the system. The system serves us. It provides us with things that we need. Um, but even though intellectually we know we're destroying the system, we're damaging it irreparably, perhaps, we are struggling to take the action that we need to take 
in order to live up to that intellectual knowledge. And until we can grasp those concepts, until we can grasp our embeddedness within the ecological system and our role and our value relative to other parts of that system, other species within the system, we will be unable to really solve the problems because it's the system that we operate in that's the problem. Our system, our operating system is the problem. And until we change the system, we will continue to fail to deliver effective change. We have to change the way we think in order to be able to understand how to address these problems. Hmm. Is that what you mean by that? Is it uh, kind of these, not exploratory, but the way of exploiting this, the, the, the landscape and right because the history of the of the species us as a humans is kind of like we were always conquering the wilderness and and taking the land of the woodland or whatever it was and changing it into fields and it is very deeply embedded kind of like in like almost like that landscape that is a product of centuries of certain use like we are also a product of kind of our history it's um i don't know if it's possible re recent history yes um but all of the drive to kind of dominate subjugate nature to deliver what we want is really quite recent in our history it's it's you know, since the agricultural revolution. Prior to that, we had to live in harmony with our environment, but otherwise we died. And, and there are still people today, very, very, very few, sadly, who still do that, who still understand that inextricable connectedness between us and our environment. And we've, we've, in a really, in evolutionary terms, in a very short space of time, we've created a situation where most people on this planet um, either live in or aspire to live in a way that is really quite disconnected from the natural world. We love watching on the telly, we love engaging in it on our terms, and we expect it to do certain things for us, but we don't really nurture it and we don't want it in our homes. We don't want it in our lives in a way that is uncomfortable for us. But nature's an uncomfortable thing. Our lives were very uncomfortable. We've become very comfortable. Some of us have become very comfortable and we have become very used to the idea that it is there to serve us, as you suggest. But I think that's really quite recent. If, if you went back 
I don't know, five or 600 years and you said to people, what do you aspire to for your life? What's your purpose in life? And you said that to, uh, you know, a farmer or, or somebody who was, is living a, a fairly ordinary life. They probably wouldn't aspire to be continually better off than they are now. They would want to be able to feed their family and have adequate shelter and be able to live a relatively simple but not too close to the starvation line life. And that is so far removed now from what we aspire to, which is something which is driven by this insane appetite to consume and to be better off tomorrow than I am today. And it's that, that's the problem. That's the nub of the problem. And that longing, that longing to go back to a natural world is symptomatic of this being the problem. And if you want to, looking, looking at, at, at our appetite for reestablishing the natural world, whether you want to call it rewilding or wild, whatever you want to call it, 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 a lot of it, a lot of the, the appetite for it focuses on, on doing it over there. I want to live here in my nice little comfortable house with, you know, all mod cons and hot water and, and, and continuous heating and all that lovely stuff and be able to buy avocados all year round in the supermarket for very little money. But I want to know that over there, it's all wild and we're looking after we're looking after everything so it can it can function beautifully and wildly and there there are all these wonderful animals so long as i don't have to give up anything over here what we need to do is we need to stop trying to consume so much and start to wild people we need to go back to an understanding of our integration in the natural world. We need to wild our human environment. We need to understand that living the way that we live is incompatible with having wildness, naturalness, because so long as at the moment, at the moment, the opportunity to live, to have wilderness, to have to, to, to rewild or to, to create a more natural environment, we can afford to do it. We can afford to do it here because we've basically outsourced all the stuff that costs us money or costs us resources elsewhere. We don't deal with our own waste. We don't grow our own food. We don't produce very much. We offer services for people, but we actually have outsourced all the stuff that makes wilding really quite difficult. It happens somewhere else. And those people over there who are almost always poorer than us can't have wildness because we've taken it away from them because we expect them 
to provide us with the services that we don't really want to have to deliver to ourselves for ourselves. So if you're looking at it from a global point of view, you really need to deal with economic and social injustices before you can start to look at environmental injustices and try to address them. So that I feel, I personally feel that the rewilding movement that I see here in Scotland is a product of wealth and it is limited to the wealthy. Yeah, that's uh, that's a fantastic way to put it. I, 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 I'm wondering where we get there because where, 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 where we get in this conversation because here's a here's the thing yeah uh you 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 absolutely right on almost everything that you said and i and i kind of agree with that but i see a, a little bit of a conflict there because on the one hand we're saying that we can we are very we are very comfortable and we don't want um inconveniences of let's let's say having livestock depredated by predators right and if you mention wolf it's like oh my god you're in right so how i'm what i'm getting from you is like on one on one hand you're saying this is the problem we are very comfortable we don't want to live with the inconveniences and we are happy out to have this somewhere else there 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 we have a fenced reserve and we we have like i often hear that term of uh hu without human intervention without you know no human wildlife reserve which which i'm saying like i'm not interested like if like it might not be as well there but on the other hand um i feel like you i, I don't even i even think that you said it in in one of the uh, either blogs or videos that the the rewilding movement especially reintroduction of the large predators won't work until as long as we have agriculture and we have uh, you know a, 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 let's say farming activity going on in the landscape so how how do you how do you connect the two so which one which one is it we should we accept should we get rid of the agriculture to have these predators, or should we accept these different like how how do you how you connect the two um so if you look looking at, at Scotland, let's let's start with on a small scale, start with Scotland. Um, I think that we need to grow more of our own food. I think we need to nurture our agriculture. And it's not impossible to see a, a point in time when we can live with apex predators we do live with one apex predator already with the white-tailed eagles though they have a significant impact on livestock production as as well as other ecological side of things um but we need to understand how we value that we need to understand how to try to work with those two things together. And at the moment, 
the reintroduction um, schemes seem to ignore or deny those people whose livelihoods are adversely impacted. So for anybody who's losing livestock to white-tailed eagles, there's no compensation. There's no, there is a, a scheme, but there's no financial compensation. And it's considered by most people to be something that, that you know, that, that, that's a price that's worth paying. Fortunately for them, they're not paying the price. But to be imposing that on people who have a livelihood that's been their lifelong vocation and probably the vocation of their family for generations, to have that imposed on them and to tell them that they have to somehow put up with it and they'll just have to find a, a, a different job or a different lifestyle is a social injustice, which I just find astonishing, absolutely gobsmacking, that that, that somehow is even remotely acceptable. It's like somebody saying, you know, well, I'm sorry, you can't do the job you're doing because, you know, and it doesn't matter if you spent a lifetime training for it, you're going to have to go and do something completely different. And most, most farmers are struggling. And they're struggling not because they want to struggle and they want to farm in really quite marginal ways in order to produce stuff. I mean, we, we've forced our farmers into a situation where they can't really afford to put animal welfare, they continue to try to, but no farmer wants to see their animals suffering. No farmer wants to pour chemicals into their land. No farmer wants to see that really marginal that land being marginalized and damaged, we force them to do that because we refuse to pay proper amounts of money for decent food. We've driven that down through price. So we've forced farmers to go there. And then we come and, and in, impose from a largely urban population who are the majority we impose additional problems for them to deal with. And so well, we're not going to pay for that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And it, it's, it's just not right. And I see too many people whose livelihoods are being threatened by a largely urban population yearning for a more natural world because their world's really not very natural. But the people who are being impacted by that actually probably live closest to nature of all the people in this country. They are the ones who don't have email, who don't have broadband, who don't have electric cars, who, who live in un... Un, largely unheated houses, houses which are still heated by a wood burner. You know, these, these people are a lot closer to nature than the ones who often are driving these 
rewilding type agendas. And we would take away their livelihood. And that's wrong. I'm sorry, I, I, I can't see a way of justifying that. I think that we need to completely change how we're looking at it. We need to create an, a situation where people who live close to nature are encouraged to continue to be close to nature, but we need to bring everybody else to that place by bringing nature into their lives. And it's not by reintroducing apex predators. Yeah. Clearly you have this very, you, you thought, thought about this very deeply. You have it very well thought out. Well, I, no, I don't because I'm, I'm still on, I'm still very much on a journey. But it, 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 I used to come from a viewpoint that was quite different, that was more traditionally conservationist. And it's only literally in the last three or four years, as I've worked a lot with people who actually live on the ground, people who actually live in the countryside here, who, who, who are the kind of backbone of our rural economy, that I've realized that I've been incredibly blind to some real truths. I've been one of those people who've been wrapped up in the comfort of my background and my privilege. Gotcha. So how, because quite often, like if you, if you present this point of view to let's, let's call them rewilders, right? We, it's just like, a, like an umbrella term. Um, then you often hear, at least I often hear like, oh, but we, the farmers can live alongside wolf. The farmers can live, so we live for like this many, this many years alongside. And I, I, I'm assuming this is not the view that you share that we, we can, but maybe, you know, maybe like how, how do you see this work? Because on one, on one hand, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing that you not in favor of this introducing, let's introduce the predators and let's get the woodlands to recover and let's bring everything back because you're saying that will, that, that there's actually people there and their lives will be impacted. But the trajectory these people are, we all are on is leading to disaster. So what's the... So I, I would... So I would like to see, I would love to see an environment here in the Highlands, which is much more natural, that has spaces where wildlife thrives, where we have incredible diversity. But I also want to see that landscape containing farming, hunting, activities that have, you know, taken place in the countryside for a long time. I want to see those continuing. So it's trying to find a way where, in which we can integrate, reintegrate our production 
with a more natural, uh, more of a, a nature-based um, environment. So I, I can't, at the moment, I can't see, uh, no, let me, let me rephrase that. When we talk about wolves, lynx, white-tailed eagles, whatever, the apex predators, when we talk about them as being keystone species and we're looking at them, they are the top of the pyramid. All right. I don't really understand why we aren't starting at the bottom of the pyramid. Because if the bottom of the pyramid is not right, it doesn't matter how many we reintroduce, it won't succeed in the way that we want it to. We have to build the pyramid from the bottom upwards. If we don't have the things in place to support them, then it's kind of doomed. I also think we need to be realistic about those conflicts that will arise between production and nature. So when we reintroduce something, we give it a kind of a special status. They are really precious because we've spent a lot of money and effort and time putting them there. But when we have conflict, that means that we can't manage them. We're not allowed to manage them. And it denies the side of the conflict that's paying the price. And, and that's, that's where the resistance comes from. If you say to somebody, you know, we're, we're releasing beavers or we're releasing whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. And there will be adverse impacts. Now, to start off with, when we re released white-tailed eagles, we were told there would be no adverse impacts. And that, that myth perpetuated for a long time, even when we knew they did. We wouldn't admit that that was the case. So you end up saying to all these people who say, well, I've seen it happening. No, 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 you're lying. <laughs> it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. That's I'm not the dead sheep the over there. Telling you it doesn't happen. And the guy's saying, I have seen it. I know it happens. As soon as you start to do that, you've lost, you've lost them. Because they're paying the price and you are completely denying it. If you're going to do that, you have to understand exactly what's going to happen pretty much. You, you need to understand the consequences, intended and unintended, of what you're doing. Beaver releases, fantastic. You know, beavers are wonderful landscape engineers. They probably have an incredibly valuable role to play in flood management. Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. However, we've spent a lot of money planting riparian woodland, a lot of taxpayers' money planting riparian woodland, that beavers that are living on agricultural produce are now taking down. 
that's an unintended consequence. And they're not they're not doing what beavers in the wild would do because we don't live in a wild country. They're not moving around, having used up the resources in one area. They don't need to because there's a field of carrots over there, and that's what they're eating. <laughs> okay? Exactly. So they're staying in the same place. And a lot of the riparian woodland along the Tay is suffering as a result. Those things we need to understand. And if we don't have that pyramid to support those apex species at the top, we will have a lot more adverse unintended consequences. And those unintended consequences tend to be the ones that are conflict-based. That will lead to people shooting them or trapping them illegally. And at that point, any welfare value for those species is gone. I do not want to see wolves come. I'd, I'd love to see wolves. I've seen wolves in Greenland. They are absolutely magnificent. Don't get me wrong. I would love to see lynx. I would love to be able to, you know, watch these animals in their, in their natural habitat. I would hate to see wolves being reintroduced or lynx being reintroduced and then them being trapped, damaged, shot illegally because we're not allowed to touch them and their welfare therefore being completely ignored. That to me seems to be the worst possible outcome. And I worry that this kind of fixation on apex predators or, and, and we're, we're terrible at this, you know, they've got to be nice and cuddly. They've got to be nice and attractive. They've got to be sexy. We're not interested in the, uns the little beetles and the little nasty flies and, uh, bees and, you know, things that a lot of people, they don't find them sexy, so they've got no interest in it. But they are the cornerstone. They are the, the foundation on which this is all built. And in, if, you, if you go from a kind of local context to a global context, how can we talk about rewilding here whilst we're still destroying the Amazon rainforest? Why, why are we not stopping doing the bad stuff first? Why do we still continue to miss our biodiversity targets? Let's focus on stopping the loss before we start spending money on the sexy stuff. Or is that just because that's politically expedient? Yeah, yeah. You, you, you touch on, on, on so many interesting points I'm, I'm gonna try to pick pick some of them because we won't have a time to, <laughs> to oh, go I'm through sorry. all <laughs> well it, it's it's absolutely brilliant kathy um you're right about one thing uh that not about one thing about many things but i, I just want to pick out on uh, management after reintroduction yeah this is one of the things like Similarly, like you, I would love to see wolf and bear and boar and all the, the whole deal. Absolutely. I had a number of conversations, obviously, with people who are want to rewild and, and, and so on. And one of the 
things what I don't think, like especially in the Irish context, but I'm sure in in Scottish context is the same thing. I'm why why I'm not so convinced that reintroduction of wolves is a great idea, because like you said, there is no we we kind of gonna reintroduce a sacred cows. We have these wolves there, and you you can't you can't touch them. And I I have spoken on the podcast with a hunter from Sweden. And Sweden obviously have wolves. And he kind of briefly got into the all, let's say, mess that wolves created. Not, not all their fault, but, you know, even to the point where, uh, where, where Hunter find a wolf that was hit by a car and, and euthanized that wolf. It was, it was badly damaged. And then that person has his house burned or car damaged because he killed a wolf, which was already, already which dead, right? Dispatch, yes. Yeah. yeah. And and I had this conversation with with one of the guys who is really quite vocal in the, on the Irish scene, uh, Irish rewilding scene. Let's call it that way. And I said, like, so would you rather introduce wolf? an agree management plan or would you rather not reintroduce wolf at all? And this is a guy who's like, oh, all about wolf, right? And the answer was like, no, no introduction if lethal management, right? And it was like, like, I couldn't understand that. And then what was even more interested, like say, so what do you see? I said, well, there are various ways of doing that. You know how many is you know either problem animals or 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 excess of the habitat you know the usual. Uh, I'm not ecologist, uh, so you know I'm kind of throwing these phrases that I heard somewhere, and um, and and the response was quite surprising because the response was like, oh, you would like to run trophy hunting, <laughs> right? And I was thinking like, well, you know, that, like after. Second thought is like, well, trophy hunting, if you think about it, is actually quite successful way of pro- of protecting vast lands, vast swaths of habitat. So maybe in the end, that wouldn't be that bad idea. But then again, you know, obviously the context it came out is like, no, 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 absolutely. No. You, you, so how do you, I couldn't understand that. And and this is for me. This is probably the biggest like why no don't like like you said like let's deal with bees and war, worms that live in the soil and all this stuff first and not even talk about wolves because you're clearly talking about this charismatic animals right the the, the phrase I, I I used in one of the podcasts which I got a little bit of a backlash was like fluffy rewilding right but this it it is like a sacred cows fluffy rewilding you have these animals you can't touch them absolutely. No way. I couldn't understand that. So I suppose when I've heard that kind of viewpoint, which I have, um, and particularly because I'm a hunter, um, people are, some people find it very difficult to understand hunting. But there's also the, the sorts of people who are, are having viewpoints which are really quite radical or, or they're very difficult to kind of be flexible around it. Often the people who have um, 
not always, but they often have not that much contact. So they're not necessarily going to be directly impacted by it. Um, that's not always true. I accept that fact. And there are some incredible people who, you know, live um, out there passionate about reintroducing wolves in particular, but, you know, that, that are much more connected. Um, but if you, so thinking about wolves, you're never going to be able to keep them out there, over there, you know, because actually, you know, they, they will integrate into all areas of our, probably not city centers, but they're going to become peri-urban. Yeah, exactly. They're dogs, right? Somehow dogs got domesticated. That happens for a reason. But, but they need to eat. It would solve the domestic cat problem. There wouldn't be any domestic cats. <laughs> oh, the songbirds. This is another, like, oh, all the songbirds. <laughs> How long will people tolerate it if you can't let your dog out at night and your cat doesn't survive, not because it gets hit on the road, but because it gets eaten? And you can't have rabbits or guinea pigs or anything living outside in the garden because they'll they'll get eaten and and that and and then there's that 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 uncomfortable reality which is that uh small humans you know there isn't much in the way of 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 human wolf adverse interaction but it would be a concern if i had small children and i knew there were wolves outside the door i might be pretty careful about letting my kids out unsupervised you know, in the woods, playing in the woods. Yeah, yeah. And that's the point at which people won't tolerate it because it, it starts to have this direct impact on them. And often those viewpoints are held by people who won't pay the consequences, who won't pay the price. There's always a price to pay. There's always a balance of benefits and disbenefits. And the problem with the disbenefits at the moment is that it's paid by a relatively small number of people in a rural setting who don't make much money anyway, who have a relatively low standard of living relative to the rest of us. And they have very little political clout because they are few in number and they are remotely located. Yeah. And what do they know? <laughs> And yet they're the people who've been the custodians of our landscape for a long time. And I would genuinely go back to the point that I made earlier, which is if our landscape doesn't look great at the moment, that's partly because, certainly from a farming context, that's partly because we are unwilling to pay a reasonable price for high-quality produce. We expect to be able to buy, you know, a pint of milk for a pound, 50p, whatever, you know, just. Yeah, everything. And, in, you know, my parents were brought up at a time when 30 or 40% of the family income would be spent on food. And that supported farming in a way that was not too intensive, not too adverse in terms of animal welfare. There was no need to keep things in pens, 
caged all their lives. Things lived outside, you know, grass-fed. Not, you know, we, we, we have a system now which doesn't allow these people who are our landscape custodians, it doesn't allow them to be the custodians they want to be, to look after the landscape. So the fact that they're not doing that job very well isn't their fault. They are still desperately trying to do it. I haven't met a single farmer or crofter or land manager who doesn't want their land to be in better condition. For sure. Listen, and so what would you then, what would be your comment on uh, opinion? Like, right, this is all, all good, but we are on a, on a uh, you know, Great Britain and Ireland on a specific context. We don't have, the, these, these animals cannot move on their own. And then most of Europe have farming and they live with wolves, bear, boar, you know, all this. And they, yeah, they're fine. They're, they're you know, like, what, what's, what's your, because then, you know, and I'm not suggesting that, by the way, but putting that to the extreme would be like, well, should we, you know, get rid of those animals in, a, in, a, uh, in Europe as well? Or, you know, where is, I, I still feel like, and there, there is a conflict, I still kind of cannot reconcile all these things that are right and true and correct, but all of them, you know, together, it's like, there is some, it doesn't quite add up. Like what? Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying and I, and I understand it. And I understand, you know, in some ways we, we are lucky enough to be an island. So we have to kind of consciously go through these discussions because they're not just going to suddenly swim across the channel and, and appear. Um, well, they may appear, they have appeared, you know, <laughs> they have appeared. Um, and, and in some ways that's the worst because that's unthinking. That's, that's not engaging in a, in a sensible public dis discussion about, about what should happen or what could happen, or, you know, if it, if it were to happen, what we would then permit in terms of managing um, adverse consequences. You know, I think that's, we need we need to talk that through properly and and we don't have great track record on it because we haven't necessarily been fully open and truthful with the reintroductions we have done we have made you know we weren't very honest about white-tailed eagles at the outset and the beavers have arrived legally and illegally okay so you know and they're accepted now but they're also you know you have to apply for a license to manage them and it's not, there hasn't been a full discussion about how that introduction has been managed because some of it has been managed outside that legitimate space. In, in a European context, I mean, I, as you suggested with your, your Swedish hunter friend, there is a, a huge amount of conflict around that interface between um, large predators or apex predators and, and humans and human activity. Um, 
and hunting per se seems to be being drawn into that as well. Hunting seems to be becoming, you know, the, the really big bad thing that, that is somehow um, bad for nature, bad for conservation. It, it has no place. Um, and yet very often um, hunters are, are people who also want to see um, as much of, of, of the, the whole, you know, trophics cascade present as possible because that's, it, it, it's a more natural setting. Um, I don't know how to, don't know how to kind of change that or, or manage that in a way that is helpful unless we can start from the premise that we need to come into these discussions and we need to, we need to start to discuss things without coming in with all our preconceptions. So we, we have, we all have preconceived ideas about, we all have judgments about the rightness and wrongness of, of apex predator reintroductions, hunting, that whole rewilding agenda, all of it, we all have a view most of us have a view who are within that space and we are struggling to have any kind of sensible discussion because again, that, that debate's becoming incredibly polarized without really understanding that we all sit, need to sit on, there is a whole spectrum. There is a whole continuum. Um, and, you know, I, I was listening to your podcast with Pete Cairns. I know Pete quite well. Um, I spent quite a lot of time in the past. Thanks for listening. <laughs> appreciate it um and actually and he's right there's the, the difference between these opinions is actually not as great as it seems there is a reasonable amount of common ground but we don't seem to be able to enter into any kind of sensible debate without it getting out of hand because we are struggling to leave some of those acutely felt injustices at the door. Um, and it just becomes a fight. So we do need somehow to start to have um, some important discussions about here in Scotland, about our landscape that allows us perhaps to, to be able to, to do some things that are, are, are more helpful for the environment. And, and we're starting, so pattern of land ownership is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a classic challenge for us to deal with, which is starting to happen through the Land Reform Act and Scottish Land Commission. And, you know, that we have an incredibly antiquated system. Um, but we need to do some of this basic work first before we go to the end point, which is to start talking about apex predators. Let's do the groundwork first. And until we've done that groundwork, we're not going to be in a position which to, 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 to get everything in, in the right place and to have a sensible discussion. And then we will be in the position which they find themselves in in Europe in, in often, where stuff will come in because it, it's, it's effectively borderless. Um, 
and the management is being done often underground, often below the radar, um, and creating this incredible tension between people who want to preserve, conserve, look after all aspects of the natural heritage and those people who are impacted by it and who want to manage it. And it's a conflict, in fact, between the people who are ultimately at the foundation are looking for the same thing. <laughs> there, there is actually a lot of common ground, but, but are they over, are they're over here and they're fighting over here, even though the, the base is there because they all want habitat and all those animals being there. We, we all want to have a landscape and, a, and a, an environment that meets our needs and is as natural as possible and is as productive as possible. Yeah, yeah. One last thing, Katie, uh, that, that I, that I want to ask you about. What's your view? You're, you mentioned you're a, you're a hunter. And um, what, is, what do you think, what is a role of hunting and advocating and educating and getting more hunters you know they, i think in the whole world is like there's less and less hunters and the population of these hunters who are actually hunting is getting older and older it is going away and and part of me almost thinks like you know if if all these animals and all the remaining wildness will go away kind of hunters will go away with that almost like a predators with their prey <laughs> kind of go but you know i feel like there is uh, i don't like the fact that hunters are very often excluded from these discussions and and they're not making m any favors often themselves by trying to inject themselves into con 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 conversation about con conservation rewilding management and so on so what is, in your view, what is the role that hunting in general plays or should play in improving the state of things? Because I, I think we, we agree that the things are going, you know, south. They're going wrong direction. What is that role? How would you like to see this playing out? And what would be your advice for, you know, either individual hunters or hunting organization what would be the way to engage and 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 try to improve things so i never wanted to hunt so i was given opportunities 20 plus years ago and i didn't want to take them i didn't feel it was something i was comfortable with um and then i professionally i felt i needed to understand what hunting was about, especially deer, because I was telling people they needed to cull deer. And I didn't really understand what the practicalities of that meant. So I thought, you know, actually, I need to do this. I need to at least go and observe it um, because I actually don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I, I that's, a, that's very that's that's very honest and i wish more people have this self-reflection on them like well am i talking about something i knew anything about <laughs> yeah I, I i don't like looking stupid so <laughs> so i i i felt obliged to go along and 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 have a look and 
I went on and had a look and thought, oh, that's quite interesting. Not really what I thought. Um, and it did kind of, even just observing one stalk and the whole process and the larder and all the rest of it, did kind of open my eyes a bit and go, oh, this is, this is, there's more to this than I thought. You know, there's more to this than I had anticipated. And so I started, you know, I actually went out and I, I booked myself a day out stalking out in the hills here at the back of where I live. And I had the most amazing day out, absolutely amazing day. I was out in the hill for six or seven hours. It was fantastic um, stag stalking. And yeah, I was blown away by the skill, by the challenge, by the fact that actually the first three stags we tried to stalk into, we couldn't get to. So, you know, that... They definitely had a sporting chance. Um, and I hadn't anticipated it tapping into something really very primitive and very basic in my psyche, as in pretty much all humans' psyche. Um, there is, we are hunters. We are predators. We're also prey. Um, and and there may be a, there may be a gender division there actually, um, which is an interesting idea which you know we won't go into now. But my feeling about hunting is that if you are being an effective hunter, you actually have to insert yourself into the environment in a way that you don't really have to do for anything else. So you have to think like a predator. You have to be completely immersed in that role. And there is no space in your head for anything else if you're going to be successful. And therefore, as a kind of educational tool for getting people immersed in nature, it's without parallel. It has incredibly powerful ways of giving people that sense of, oh, my word, now I know what we're all about as a kind of species, as, as a bit of nature. I, I now get it. I get it completely. And, and, of course, you know, we have firearms that are incredibly, you know, we, we are way more powerful than we would have been originally as predators. So there's, there's one opportunity there which I think is, is incredibly powerful, but the – the public perception of hunting is such that it's going to be a massive barrier to using that as a tool. Hunters are, uh, because they often know their ground extremely well, they're extremely well placed to participate in informed discussions about how to improve it. Um, and it depends on what your objective is. You know, if your objective is to shoot more things or shoot bigger things or you know, that, that's going to be slightly different from other objectives. But on the whole, um, mostly an environment that is good for hunting is often good for nature as well. Um, so the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. And as you say, you know, without, without nature there, 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 there would be no hunting. 
um, how to rehabilitate hunters in the eyes of the general public, I, I don't know, other than to say that on the whole, children don't hold those preconceptions. And where we sometimes try to do events where we involve primary school children in understanding uh, around deer hunting, you know, we won't take them out actually on a hunt, but we'll go out and show them deer, go to the larder, there's a carcass, this is how we cut it up, this is what we do to it, here's a venison burger, you know, crack on. This have is food. Yeah. <laughs> this is how food looks like. And they get that process. And, and that's that to me, that's the most attractive bit of the process is the provisioning. So there is nothing more satisfying than sitting down to a meal at my table with venison that I've shot and vegetables that I've grown in my garden. That for me is an incredibly powerful story. And we need to make more of that story. Um, and particularly if we, are, if we can engage with children, we allow them to understand that connection as well. And I think that's, that's, that's actually really important. And uh, we're very, again, with our food production, we're incredibly divorced from the reality of what it takes to put food on our table. And um, we really do need to understand that better in order to help guide some of our behaviors in a direction that's more helpful. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, absolutely. So in, 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 in essence, hunter recruitment, <laughs> that's, that's what we should look like. The world would be better place. I think we could do a lot worse. But we need to break down those those preconceptions of what hunting is and what hunt, who hunters are. I mean, in 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 this part of the world, male, pale, and stale—they're all men, almost all men. They're all white. They're all middle-aged or older. And no, I mean that's a that's a broad sweeping generalization. But that's true of the majority. There are very few women. There aren't enough young people. Um, but we've demonized. Here we have demonized the sector and we have demonized the things that that sector manages, which are deer. Deer are a convenient hook to hang all the evils, ecological evils, on partly because there's legislation to support it. It's not actually that simple. And the people who work with deer have been demonized in the process. That's very, that's, that's, you're right. You're right. And then you have this narrative, oh, let's just cut loose a bunch of wolves and they're going to sort out deer. And it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Yeah, I don't know how to. I don't. I I don't know how to solve the problem. I don't have any answers. All I and, and you know, doing this podcast, doing doing the cull, doing the, the the films that I've done. All I want people to do is to ask some more questions of themselves. Yes. To look at things in a wider way, have an open mind, a growth mindset. 
that allows them to see a broader spectrum than they're currently seeing and to ask some really difficult questions that guide a better informed decision-making process. Exactly. To get them out of their trenches. Because yes. that's their, yeah. their, their opinions are very entrenched. Take the blinkers off. Yeah. yeah. Um, Katie, so uh, to, to finish off, what's your prediction for the future? You're probably the first guest on my podcast who openly admitted at the beginning that you're not optimistic which is, which is which is first because usually people are like oh i'm optimistic because i want to be optimistic um, yeah. so uh, how how do you see um how do you see our future in relation to nature play out next 10 50 100 years how do you how do you see if you look at the you know crystal ball or if you have to predict um you know, place your bet and then thousand or hundred years from now, the God will say, hey, Kathy, Kathy, you predicted this and this is like, what would you be your bet? What, how, we, how it's going to play out? Um, the optimist in me will say that it'll be okay in the end. Um, but the realist in me that says that before we can get to a better place, it's going to get a whole lot worse. Um. So I see a, 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 a planet with a burgeoning population, all of whom aspire to the lifestyle I have. And I can look at, you know, a whole swathe of people who have a more comfortable lifestyle than I have. Fortunately, I don't actually aspire to it. I'm very happy with what I have, but... Um, I, I support a family in Nepal. I have done for 20-odd years. Um, I can't deny that they have the right to have what I have, and yet they're a million miles from it. Um, and there's a, a huge population on the planet who live less well-off than I do. Um, and that population is growing. And we have fewer and fewer resources because we are exhausting resources. Um, that's a kind of perfect storm for conflict. And I think that we will see a lot more ecological loss. Um, and I think we will eventually end up with human conflict over resources, which we'll see in a worst case scenario, you know, uh, an us and them division between those that have and those that don't have. I'd like to think that we would learn in that process and come out the far side with an equitable society that includes the environment in that equity. So equality rather, so that we have social, economic and environmental equality and justice. But I think we're going to do a lot of damage before we get there. 
because unless we can change our consumption mindset, that's a social norm. We have to change that social norm. And that's a really big ask. I can't see how we, how we get out of this. I don't see how we, we find solutions. Technology is not going to solve these solutions in the way that we kid ourselves it will. And finding, you know, putting people on Mars, is, it's not solving the problem. It's not, it, a lot of the, the kind of blue sky thinking around it isn't actually pragmatic for the vast majority of people. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's not optimistic. That's <laughs> you're, oh, and you're... I, don't, I don't expect. I don't expect in my life to see time to see anything, anything globally. Yeah, regionally, locally, possibly, but globally, I don't see things improving. In in my lifetime, I have seen, and I'm 55 now. I have seen the state of the planet absolutely nosedive. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But, you know, part of me thinks that technology and innovation is actually probably the only hope we have because that's what we always been doing. So, yeah, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm far from being convinced that this is the way and this is how it's going to play out. I'm equally um, willing to accept scenario where it's all going to end up with a, you know, big war, big, you know, big mess, whatever you think. I, I'm equally, but I just don't think, this is just my two cents uh, to that, that I, I don't think that we are able to kind of scale back because we never done that. And I, I don't think that, that no animal in the natural world on its own scales back expansion. It's always external factors that scales it back so i think that for for us as a species it's either we've figured out a way to go forward like we always do through technology to you know space exploration what, what have you getting carbon out of the atmosphere or we're gonna hit that natural limit where we will be scaled back by some natural processes and I think, I think you're right about that because particularly for us as a species, we're so transactional. Um, that simian nature is our undoing because, you know, it's all very fine for, for me to choose to, um, you know, reduce my carbon footprint and, and do all the right things. But if I don't see you doing the same thing, mm -hmm. that makes yeah. me pissed off and I really don't feel why, why I should do something that's a little bit uncomfortable for me if I can't see everybody else around me doing it. And there are relatively few people who are altruistic enough to do that in spite of the fact that everybody else is not behaving in the, in, in, in the same way. So it probably will be, you know, I can see us fighting over water. I can see us fighting over land. Um, and I can, I can see those, those 
limitations being imposed on us by resource limitation, resource scarcity, that will be where our challenges come. And I think that there is a point at which technology cannot overcome that resource scarcity. When we appear to be making headway in in getting around, you know, the hydrocarbon scarcity issue. But um, it's been a long, painful and difficult process. And it's not, we're not there yet. Um, and, and, and that's something to which there is, there are alternatives. Um, water and land, air, they are in finite supply. You know, and, and, and at what point does planetary degradation get to the point where it, they are not able to perform their normal function anymore? We're um, almost there. I think we're almost there. I, I, you know, it's very difficult, to, especially in the pandemic at the moment. You know, you kind of say, well, actually, I'm living in a, I am living in one of those historic moments when there is major change. Um, it's very uncomfortable. I don't like it. Um, I, I have a lot of grief around environmental damage. Makes me very unhappy to see what happens. And it's making me you know, quite unhappy to see the, the whole um, impact of, of the pandemic as well, which is, is, a, is a product of, of how we live um, in relation to nature. But because because of because of our human nature as well, that doesn't that's not a, a overwhelmingly how I feel all the time. It's one of those things that, you know, you, you acknowledge it, you recognize it, and then you put it away in its little box because you actually can't live with it all the time. It's too difficult. It's too difficult to do that. Um, so you know, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm I'm a complete pessimist and miserable and grieving the whole time, but I'm not optimistic for the future. I'm not thinking that life is going to be better just around the corner. And I definitely don't think that's going to be true for my lifetime. Yeah. Well, it's uh, hard, to, hard to disagree. <laughs> Katie, is there anything uh, that you would like to uh, leave our listeners and viewers going forward? Any words of wisdom or any advice? So I suppose I think the pandemic and our the restrictions that we've experienced and it has forced us to look quite carefully. We've had time and we've had, a lot of us have had time, not everybody, but a lot of us had time to look at the things that actually are really important to us. And they're often much simpler than we might have thought. You know, if you were asking the same question 18 months ago, we would have come up with different answers from the ones that we've come up with now. And for a lot of people, actually getting outside in green spaces, the value of those things has become significantly more important, especially if you don't have a garden. So if you live in a block of flats, then that need for green space has really hit home. Um, I think that it is perhaps a useful time 
for us to just pause and look at what those priorities are. What are the really important things to us? It's, it's other human contact um, and often outside green spaces. So going forwards, when we have the opportunity to start to think about going back to normality, we have a chance to make a bit of a step change. So let's make something good come out of this pretty awful current situation with the coronavirus pandemic. Let's take some of those priorities and very mindfully and deliberately make them part of our new normal. I think we've been given this incredibly awful, but nonetheless potentially beneficial opportunity to make some life changes. It's been forced on us. Let's not make it all bad. Let's do something positive with that. And then if we can do that at this stage, then continue very mindfully going forwards to live lives that are ecologically more sound. Yeah. Beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, uh, Katie. It's been absolute pleasure, pleasure uh, talking with you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you. It's been great to speak to you too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 